The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Hekigon Roku, the Blue Cliff Record, Case 45. Joshu's seven-pound hempen shirt. Engo's introduction. When he wants to speak, he speaks, and none can rival him throughout the whole universe. When he wants to act, he acts, and his activity is peerless. The one is like shooting stars and flashing lightning. The other is like crackling flames and slashing blades. When he sets up his forge to temper his disciples, They lay down their arms and lose their tongues. I will give an example. See the following. Main subject. A monk asked Joshu, All the 10,000 things return to oneness. But to where does oneness return? Joshu replied, When I was in Seishu, I made a hempen shirt. It weighed seven pounds. Secho's verse. You brought a piece of logic to trap the old gimlet. But do you know the meaning of the seven-pound hempen shirt? Now I have thrown it away into Lake Seiko and sail before the wind. Who will share the coolness with me? This morning, we chanted Sagaki for all those who have passed on, including within this past year or so, several who
こう Made the very difficult decision to end their own lives. Naturally, this leaves those who cared deeply about them in some. Feeling of confusion and anguish, and often the thought comes what could I have done more? How could I have helped? Why didn't I see it coming? I should have, dot, dot, dot. But when we do this practice assiduously and give ourselves over to what cannot be put into categories like good and bad. Should have and shouldn't have, right and wrong. We can come to feel this action is what it is. It could not be otherwise. We don't understand it, but we must respect it. This is very important. None of us knows the depths of despair. That may lead to this. Some of you may be familiar with the book called The Noonday Demon. And there are many, many people, especially right now, we are seeing a wave of returning veterans. Grappling with and not able to make the transition home. So I bring this up because even though many of you may not realize any of this has been happening, for those of you for whom it has been all too real. I want you to know whether we are aware of it on a conscious level or not, we do join in your 
anguish. So I have been going through the Blue Cliff record sequentially here and today have come to case 45 and maybe next year we'll come to the case we heard yesterday. At Daibosatsu Zendo, I did sequentially Mumon Khan, Gateless Gate, for the first two years, got to the end and started the Iron Flute because of my deep karmic affinity for Nyogen Senzaki. Well worth reading, by the way. <laughs> well, no matter what koan collection you use, you can't avoid Joshu. So here he is today again. Great Zen master Joshu. In Chinese, We use Japanese because we can't pronounce Chinese. <laughs> so much easier, Joshu. Chao <laughs> Joe. Good? Yes. Okay. Hmm? Tang Dynasty, 778 to 897. So he was a contemporary of Rinzai's. For part of his life, he was a contemporary of just about everybody because he lived to be 120. <laughs> and he is a contemporary of ours because of his unsurpassed Zen profundity and expression. Everyone knows Joshu's I use the word nose in nose, K-N-O-W-S, in quotes. So we shout, in this way, this is true knowing, true contemporary of Joshu. He was a student for 40 years of Nansen, and after Nansen's death, he went on pilgrimage, testing himself among many, many teachers and doing solitary practice. And in the Book of Rinzai, chapter 17 in Kamben, cross-examinations, Joshu meets Rinzai. Rinzai was washing his feet. Joshu comes up to him and asks, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? Rinzai answered, just now I'm washing my feet. Joshu came closer, gesturing as if to listen, 
Rinzai said, would you like to receive a second ladle of dirty water? <laughs> Joshu departed. End of story. Finally, at the age of 80, he settled in the village of Joshu. That's how he got his name. And we have so many koans, as I said, that have come down from his various encounters and teachings in which he used words in a way that cut through all concepts, all ideas, all intellectual exercises, all wishes and hopes and imagined spiritual goals. And he was so renowned for this way of using words that it was said that a golden light hovered around his lips. Some of you know Joshu's Wash Your Bowl or Joshu and the Hermits or the famous case in which a monk brought up this question again. What is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And Joshu replied, I know you all know this. Hmm? For Myorin, Joshu is alive and well. She has only seen red maple. But Joshu looked out and saw cypress tree, some say oak tree, oak tree in the garden. And so then the monk said, don't use external things to teach people with master. External things or material things or 10,000 things. Don't use external things to teach with. And Josh said, I've never used external things to teach people. So today's case is this seven pound hempen shirt an external thing? Careful. Today we heard Subuti Wherever there are material characteristics, you might say, external things, there is delusion. 
whoever understands that all characteristics are, in fact, no characteristics, sees the Tathagata. What does Tathagata mean? Ingo's introduction is a full-fledged, glorious appreciation of Joshua. We rarely get such a complete, 100% appreciation from Engo. But he says, when he wants to speak, he speaks. And none can rival him throughout the whole universe. When he wants to speak, he speaks the ease, the naturalness of this. Not, well, what can I say? How can I put it? Just flows from his golden mouth. Oak tree in the garden. No gap. When he wants to act, he acts, and his activity is peerless. How about us? Are we feeling peerless today? You want to act? Oh, what should I do? I don't know. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. The one is like shooting stars and flashing lightning. The one means... when he wants to speak. The other is like crackling flames and slashing blades when he wants to act. When he sets up his forge to temper his disciples. You understand what a forge does? Temper. You know what this means, temper? Gets stronger, right? Yeah. When he wants to temper his disciples, he sets up his forge. And what do they do? According to Engel, they lay down their arms. Arms meaning swords. They lay them down. Oh, no. I don't want to put it in your forge, Master. Please. No, no. And lose their tongues. Uh, So then Engel says, I will give an example. See the following. So he sets up this case this way. Main subject. Here we have a monk asking Joshu, challenging Joshu with this, all the 10,000 things return to oneness. But to where does oneness return? All the 10,000 things. Yes, so he understands all these forms that have arisen return to their original oneness. Of course, this is key teaching, right? Yes. Simultaneously, the interrelatedness of oneness and differentiation, sameness, 
and differentiation or oneness and the 10,000 things or phenomena or dharmas. So what happens when we get caught up in the 10,000 things? Hmm? When we are caught in the entanglement of the 10,000 things. What are the 10,000 things? Give me some examples. What about all of you? There are what? Some 40 of you sitting here. Are you separate from the 10,000 things? (laughs) We only say 10,000 meaning a lot. We could say 38. Hmm? I'm one of the 10,000 things. (laughs) So, as I said, typically we get caught in that level of reality, seeing self and other, this and that. And we believe in the 10,000 things, the external objects, the material characteristics, right? And they include... Everything, feelings, thought forms, all these mental, emotional, and physical states of being. And we think they are the only reality. And that's why we get into trouble. We don't realize that everything that comes into existence is already on its way out. Nothing has any separate or we might say intrinsic reality. And what we think is real is really a dream, a fantasy. And yet, we can so easily get caught in this dualistic view of the absolute and the relative, of oneness, and differentiation, the real and the apparent, what else? Existence and non-existence. Even though, as we heard today, there is no passing away or coming into existence. Many of you are familiar with the statement from the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. So this monk may have had rather deep experience of oneness and really wanted to clarify this soul going 
into it more deeply. Perhaps he tasted. This very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body is the body of the Buddha. This is 10,000 things and oneness. Oh, one together, not separated, no gap. This very monk experiencing oneness, returning to oneness. Some of you remember So-san Zenji, the third ancestor's statement, when the deep mystery of one suchness is fathomed, all of a sudden we forget external entanglements. All of a sudden, when the 10,000 things are viewed in their oneness, we return to the origin and remain where we ever have been. So perhaps this monk experienced this. And then, wanting to probe further and going to Joshu. What is it? What is it to return to the origin and find that we are where we ever have been? This is not some kind of question that is mere sophistry it's, it can be seen that he is challenging Joshu, but to go deeper than simply testing, to see this monk as carrying this burning desire to probe more deeply, yearning to step off, take another step off, a hundred-foot pole. So this question comes from within the monk's awakening spirit. We all have this yearning, right? This yearning for what is true. How can I return to my original oneness? We feel that. That's why we're here. It's not something we get and then Okay, folks, got it. Oneness. (laughs) When you see Mo, character Mo, going down, plunging, 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 plunging. No end to it. Same when you are sitting with Mo. Mo, I wonder what's for lunch. No, 
Oh, I think I better have something else next week. Mo. <laughs> Why am I so distracted? Try it. Second day of session. This is no time to be just hanging out. Right? Hang in. We're not here to just get some peace. It's a good word. Spelled both ways. We're here for the whole of it. All right? Not some little, you know, superficial, oh, I feel better now. Oh, how nice. I had a wonderful mindful experience. No, we're here to open to the mystery of this. 10,000 things return to oneness where they ever have been as they are in ordinary daily life. Joshu came to great realization with Nansen when he asked Nansen, what is the way? What did Nansen say? Ordinary mind is the way, 10,000 things. Each one is nothing but this way. I was thinking about this koan the other day when I was going over to, uh, not this koan, Ordinary Mind is the Way, this koan, today's koan, <clears throat> to where does oneness return? When I was going to a meeting of uh, Round table of faith leaders at Interfaith Works. I've been a member of this for a long time. And so many of us, the group is growing. More and more people are joining from all traditions. It used to be when I first joined, it was I was the other. There were interfaith meant Jews and Christians. But now we have Islam, somebody from Society of Friends, Quakers, of course Jewish, Tibetan Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, all varieties sitting around this table. Every Christian denomination imaginable, Salvation Army, Rescue Mission. And we've really learned how to listen to each other not to try to show that our way is really, even though we wouldn't say so, the only way, <laughs> but to really listen and work together. It's quite something. Anyway, at this meeting, someone spoke of the integration of differentiation and how this integration of differentiation is the very definition of health. 
integration of differentiation is the definition of health, of a mind, a body, a community. So integration, bringing together what seem to be two, self and other, or this faith and that faith. So working from the place of integration, and this is the place of suchness, as Sosan Zenji puts it. Originally, we are, we are integrated. Original mind is completely integrated, right? We may not experience it that way. So originally, and we might ask, originally, origin, origin. Where does that oneness return to? Sosan Zenji didn't teach about where the origin is. Buddha didn't teach about how things come into existence. Why? Well, if we really understand no passing away or coming into existence, how can we say where is the origin? And yet, the question of the origin of the universe is very much a fundamental question for certainly Western philosophy, religion, science. And what about all of us? 38 things here. Don't you remember when you were a child asking? What did you ask as a child? When is dinner? <laughs> when is dinner? Why? Why is dinner? Why is dinner? Huh? How come? How come is dinner? <laughs> Anyone else? Where did I come from, right? Where did I come from? Maybe you forgot that you had that question. You were so interested in dinner. <laughs> but where did I come from? And what else? Where am I going, right? Where am I going? Where did I come from? And where am I going? How many of you had a pet that died? How many of you had a grandparent that died? I had a father who died. A year and a half, I had that question. Where did he go? So at one point or another, most likely, 
Even wondering what's for dinner, we are asking this question. Or we may have put it into some other way. How did this world get here? Look around at these 10,000 things. How did this happen? How does it work? Or looking around nowadays, we might say, how does it not work? Because it's clearly not working. So what was the answer most of us got? God made it. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. The short answer given to most of us, whether we went to, what's, what was it called? Where you went to Catholic school, what kind of thing? Catechism? Catechism. Is that what they called it? Yeah. This is what you believe. You'd better have this down. Remember, where did this come from? God. God, right? Why? God. You don't want that to happen again? God. Right? It goes back further, though, if you think about Aristotle. I know you think about Aristotle every day. He spoke about the primary cause or the unmoved mover, the primary mover of all motion in the universe. You are scratching your neck right now. You understand why? Because of the primary mover. So in his metaphysics, Aristotle describes what he calls the unmoved mover as being perfect, beautiful, indivisible oneness, and contemplating only contemplation. Isn't this wonderful? Aristotle, as practitioner of shamatha meditation, this calm abiding awareness of awareness of awareness of awareness of awareness where does the one return to so sometimes awareness in our day is called mindfulness as I mentioned a moment ago and recently we had a visit from a wonderful many years practitioner of Theravada Buddhism, uh, insight meditation, vipassana meditation, named Daniel Barbazat. Quite a few of you had the good occasion to meet him. He's the director of the Institute of Contemplative Mind in Society. And he was really great fun. And we had a luncheon with him, and at this luncheon, he challenged the group that was there about this word, mindfulness, saying, what do you mean when you use that word? Just exactly what is it that you're talking about? Do you know? Mindfulness is, you know, used so frequently, right? Oh, even before we eat. Third, most essential, is the practice 
of mindfulness so that we can not dive greedily into our bowl. Of course, we do anyway, because it's such good food. But that's for dinner. So we use this word. And what is our, what is our underlying impulse when we speak about mindfulness? Don't we want to be one with it as it is? You all know the Buddhist who went to the hot dog vendor, right? <laughs> Make me one with everything. So Daniel and a few others stayed here while he was doing his talks at the university. A couple of other people who teach mindfulness. And after our morning zazen, they went out for a walk, and one of them came back looking so perturbed and told me about it. And I wrote a haiku, which I will share with you. Mindfulness teacher, appreciating each breath, steps into dog shit. (laughs) So we may wish intensely to experience this one with everything. Not always our choice of what we get, right? Well, if he'd been truly mindful, he would have been mindful of where he was going. (laughs) Alert. That's kind of the point of the haiku. (laughs) So we might put it another way. If all things return to this perfection that Aristotle wrote about, where does that perfection return to? And if we say God, as we have been taught, then, of course, all of us are here because we have asked the question, right? Where does God come from? That's what brought us from catechism or Hebrew school to Hoenji. (laughs) I'm sure you did, right? First you asked, where do I come from? Or who am I? Then you asked, where, do, where does God come from? I mean, that's totally logical. And who has a feeling that you got a logical answer in reply? <laughs> you know, uh, some of you know this. I told you this before at one point or another, but I had this burning question. And so one day I asked my mother, what about God? I was raised in a household where we had no religion, none. 
the only religion was we were Jewish. But we didn't deal with any of that old, you know, superstition. So I, I never had a chance to really experience Judaism until I was much older. Now I feel so grateful that I can experience Judaism and Buddhism as one. But that is another question. Anyway, one. What is that one? So I asked her, what is God? My mother is like. <laughs> but she was, she was really phenomenal because you know what she did? She took a piece of paper and a pen, not a brush, but a pen. She drew a circle. And she said, inside this circle is everything that can be known. She loved scientific discourse. Knowledge was very important to her. Everything that can be known is in this circle. What can't be known is outside the circle. We can't do anything about that. I said, the only thing I want to know is what's outside that circle. <laughs> I didn't say it to her, but I, it, it became this you know, driving force. Algebra? I don't think so. <laughs> What's outside that circle? Of course, it turned out that it was inside the circle. All the time. But this, this drive to find out, this is to, to experience, in other words, to experience this. And mystical poets do this all the time. Hafiz, how many of you know his work? There's a wonderful poem about God. Every child has known God, it's called. Every child has known God. Not the God of names. Not the God of don'ts. Not the God who ever does anything weird. You know, miracles. <laughs> but the God who knows only four words and keeps repeating them, saying, Come dance with me. Come dance. So we have these mystical poets. And also we have Modern physics. So just the other day, I was reading an article in the New York Times about the two physicists who won the Nobel Prize, Peter W. Higgs, 84 years old, of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and Francois Englert, 80 years old, of Université Libre de Bruxelles in Belgium. What was this all about? This was about the Higgs boson. This is the theory first elucidated back in 1964. Probably most of us were not aware of it at that time. And the discovery of this particle, the Higgs boson, had attracted quite a lot of attention over the years. And somebody named Leon Lederman, 
who was the former director of Fermilab, gave it a name that seems to have stuck. The name is the God Particle. And he wrote a book by that name, but later he said he really wanted to call it the Goddamn Particle. <laughs> Publisher was not going along with that. So, according to this model, the universe brims with energy that acts like a cosmic molasses, imbuing the particles that move through it with mass. The way a bill moving through Congress attracts writers and amendments, becoming more and more ponderous and controversial. That's why nothing can happen. <laughs> Without the Higgs field, many elementary particles, like electrons, would be massless and would zip around at the speed of light. There would be no atoms and no us. For scientists, the discovery of the Higgs, as physicists call it, affirmed the view of a cosmos ruled by laws of almost diamond-like elegance and simplicity, like Aristotle's perfect world, but in which everything interesting, like us, is the result of lapses or flaws in that elegance. At the heart of this quest was an ancient idea, the concept of symmetry and how it was present in the foundations of physics, but hidden in the world as we experience it. Well, I read that. And then, of course, what came next was... Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Well, you all know Blake's poem, The Tiger. Such a beautiful poem, another verse. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? This is another way of asking the same question, this mystery. Physicists look at it from one approach. Poets take another approach. This monk asked very simply, how can we know where oneness returns to? Or how can we experience it? And in a sense, he was challenging Joshu. Maybe he thought, Oh, Joshu, is he going to give me another moo? Is he going to say, all oh, things return to emptiness? But I think this monk really was asking for something real, and he got it. He got it. Another way of questioning this 
what is your true face before your parents were born? What is your original face? Hakuin said, the root source is ultimately one, the reality realm of one mind, immutable and unshakable. And Joshu, in responding to this monk, is coming from this reality realm of one mind. You might think, well, when he says, when I was in Seishu, I made a hempen shirt. It weighed seven pounds. That he's just returning us to the 10,000 things coming full circle. But remember, he said, I've never used external things to teach people. So what is he doing? Hakuin asks us, is this where the 10,000 things return indeed? Joshu turns where it is impossible to turn. This monk asking him, where does oneness return to? Turn to? Impossible to turn here. Joshu moves where it is impossible to move. The immovable mover, indeed. This is our practice. Engo Kokugon says, where it was impossible to turn, Joshu had a way to show himself, daring to open his big mouth. He immediately said, when I was in Seishu, I made a hempen shirt. It weighed seven pounds. This thing itself, we usually see it as the thing separate from the mystery. But is it merely an external thing? Is anything an external thing? Yes, each one of us is the 10,000 things. And this very oneness. So Secho's verse, you brought a piece of logic to trap the old gimlet, speaking to the monk. You thought you could use this logical mind. Okay, all the 10,000 things return to oneness. Well, how about where does oneness go? Tell me about that. Is he going to fall into logic? The old gimlet. Old Joshu, kind of sharp, you know. And then Secho says, but do you know the meaning of the seven-pound hempen shirt? Do you know the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? What did Rinzai say about the intention of this seven-pound hempen shirt? Intention? If he had had any intention, he couldn't even have saved himself. Then Secho says, 
Now I have thrown it away into Lake Seiko, West Lake. Thrown it away. Thrown this conundrum away. Thrown the whole thing away. Hurled it away. What's left? Sail before the wind. Wind in our sails. Sail before the wind means effortlessly. We are carried by the breeze. And he ends. Who will share the coolness with me? This is what we, 10,000 things, are doing here, sharing this 